Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Overrun. I'm Dan Schwester, and I'm here with two uh, special guests. Uh, we're going to talk about something that we don't talk about a lot in EMS, and um, we probably should because the story is coming out really wrong a lot of times, and we can be a big part of that. So uh, my two guests today are people who are familiar from both the legal side and the media side of EMS. Um, first of all, Margaret Keevney, welcome back to the show, friend of the show, legal consultant, uh, attorney for Keevney and Strieger, um, has been on the show a lot. Uh, welcome back again, and uh, glad Hi, to have you on. it's great to be here. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah, and I, I like the coffee mug. We're we're, we're doing our uh, we're doing our respective uh, Keevney Strieger and Overrun coffee mugs out there today. So um, you know, there there we go. Uh, and first time on the show, and somebody I'm really excited to have on is uh, Rich Huff. Uh, Rich Huff is a practice practicing EMT, uh, former chief of his. Uh, EMS organization. He is a public information officer, and we're going to get into that role and why you need one for your department. Uh, he's been named a EMS 10 innovator by GEMS Magazine, and he was the 2018 Outstanding EMS Educator um, in the state of New Jersey. Uh, Rich is a guy with a big media background. He has worked for um, a number of different outlets, uh, and he's got a real strong um background in both EMS and media. So Rich, we're going to hopefully uh, welcome on the sh welcome you on the show and hopefully you're going to help us decipher why our message sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this discussion. So Rich, let me uh, so let me start off with you, Rich. I mean, you're an active EMS clinician. Uh, you you've worked in you've worked in major media. You know the news. You're a journalist. Why why is EMS, why is EMS story, why is our story so screwed up? Why, why is it getting mixed up all the time? Um, you don't see this in the fire service. You don't see it in law enforcement. Um, what, what are we, what, why can't we get it right? Well, you know, that's a great question with a, a broad scope of issues. And I think some of it is uh, for a long time, uh, we, in generally speaking in EMS, just didn't take control of our story. So we have that issue there that we were more focused on making sure we had splints and bandages rather than making sure we had somebody to put our story out or actually be that person. So there's that. Um, so so on a, a grassroots level, it was about a matter of getting your story out before the big one happened. Um, and some of the other stuff too, and I know we'll talk about this later, is in, in sort of the fear of the legal aspect, like what can I say, what can I not say? So people end up not saying anything at all in some cases. And I think that sort of hamstrung it. And you know, comparing it to the others, we do our best work with the doors closed. Um, and whereas a fire um, and fire trucks, uh, they're big, they're visual, um, a fire has flames, it makes great pictures and great video, and I'm not discounting the impact on humans in that aspect, but in terms of a media standpoint, it's got all of the elements you want. Um, and then there's the, the people story that goes with it. Um, police, some of that activity actually happens outside of a car too, so um, people tend to see that happening. Um, so there's that aspect, and then there's also our, our connection to the community. Most folks don't have any interaction with their EMS squad unless they're sick or something bad is happening. Um, so there are a number of reasons and number of ways that we can get our message out better 
Um, some agencies are doing it really well. Some bigger agencies do it very well. Um, but a lot of local uh, smaller agencies have nothing that, and, and it doesn't help in that sense. Yeah, I can, I can say that, you know, we, I, I work for a fairly large, I've worked for a few fairly large agencies and I, I really was kind of stunned. Nobody knew who we were. I mean, and in my, my perspective, it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Cause you know, like nobody kind of knows what special forces do in the army either or Navy SEALs, but they've got a better PR presence. They've got a better <laughs> media presence. Um, it, it used to be, you know, the silent, the quiet professional thing was kind of cool for a while, but we're passed over. Like, you know, we, we, it's the ambulance driver thing instead of EMTs and paramedics, which is not a heavy lift on my part uh, or what I think. Um, I don't think they, you know, I think they don't understand the mission. And, you know, I know that we're in a soundbite era where, you know, it's a 24 hour news cycle and everything's got to be 30 seconds to a minute uh, to catch people's attention. On the other hand, I, I think that it's possible. Like, you know, and, and I, you know, thinking about some of the recent, you know, nightmares, um, you know, going back to, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, you know, I hate, you know, we're, we're still in this pandemic and there was a, a large agency, um, a large fire department based EMS agency. It was a pioneering agency. Um, and there was a news story out there that they are going to stop transporting cardiac arrests where they haven't gotten uh, ROSC in the field. And there was a huge uproar. Like this was a this was a media story. They they jumped on this, and major outlets got it. And the perception of this was that this is a new thing, and we're abandoning people to die in the streets. Meanwhile, um, it's the standard of care. Exactly, Margaret. That's what I'm trying to say. And everybody else is kind of scratching their head, going, "Wait a minute, we've been doing this for 15 years. I mean, dead is dead. We're going to resuscitate you, but if the resuscitation fails, we're going to pronounce you and we're going to move on because that's the right thing to do." Rich, how how do these stories get? I guess my question to you, as a media professional and a journalist, like, how do you get this one wrong? Well, it, there's there's a number of things um, uh, that you can address in general aspect here. One, um, and this has happened in a couple cities where they've made this decision. So, you know, they put out a memo to their team and that becomes fair game. And at that point, that becomes sort of the official statement. We always have, we have to think about everything we do um, from a written perspective, internal emails, messages to people and everybody as how will this look if the media gets a hold of it? Like, how will, the, how will this look if it ends up in the media's hands and how will you respond to it? And I think you have to think about those things when you put out those kinds of directives. Um, because as Margaret pointed out, this is the standard of care. However, everything's amplified um, at a time where uh, the pandemic is raging and any of these kinds of stories, you know, the, the, these, this story fits into that oh my God, the hospitals are backed up, EMTs are waiting in ambulances for hours to drop patients off and, and so on. So it's easy to just take that for a reporter to take that information because it's authorized and make a story out of it. It then becomes the agency on how that's, um, uh, if they get the call to do that. And that's part of the challenge too, right? In this 24 seven era, a lot of times uh, there's no friction that can get in the way or editors or somebody to ask a question about, wait, is this a real story? Have we asked the questions here? So that's how those things sort of escalate at the height of a pandemic. 
part of the challenge there too is that, and we can talk more about media relations as we go forward, but sometimes having a good relationship with the media beforehand can stop one of those things, um, or at least walk somebody through it so they understand this has been the case. Um, when you put out a directive to an organization there, though, it feels as if it's a new standard now people are operating under. And that's where the challenges come in. Reporters get this information and go with it because that's what the organization said, sometimes without any off the record or background or clarification information on what that really means. So, Rich, would you say that your agency's PIO, their cell phone number should be in the phone of any of the local reporters who cover that beat? Correct. I believe so. Um, you have to have that relationship in hand before you need it. So if you have been um, assigned to be your agency's PIO, you need to start making some relationships with reporters before that call actually happens. Um, and that's, you know, that comes back to networking. That comes back to just picking up the phone and saying, hey, how can I help you? So that when something does happen, they know, okay, it's I need to call the PIO of XYZ agency to get some sort of feedback. And also be a source for information in the sense of, hey, I got this memo. Can you explain it to me? Um, and so often people don't know who to call um, or, or how to do that. So the, it's relationship building beforehand before you get to a bad story like that. Is, is Do you think that there's a little bit of an onus on journalistic ethics here that, you know, you're a reporter, you have an obligation to get the story straight and get the news out accurately. Um, even in this era, which we've, you know, the, 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 the era of fake news and all the, the garbage that we've dealt with the last few years, you know, is there, is there some kind of onus on the journalist? Like, you know, Hey, I got this memo, but you know, what do I need to know about this? Should I put this out there? And, you know, do you consult an expert? I mean, you see it, you, you see it on the major networks and you see it on some of the minor networks. Like they have somebody, you know, they'll, they'll bring in somebody, Hey, uh, you know, uh, Senator so-and-so put this out and here's so-and-so he's an expert in this and what's your take on this and what's your analysis. And we don't see that in public safety. We see it in law enforcement um, because law, for law enforcement's high profile. Um, we sometimes see this in emergency management. We don't see it in EMS or medicine as much. Um, do you think it's on the agencies? Do you think it's on the reporter or do you think that you need to be more proactive and not, I don't want to say not trust that they're going to do their job effectively, but not trust the system to give you the results you want. Well, you can come at this from two different ways. So one, as the journalist, you should, uh, you know, trust credibility, ethics. Those are your calling cards. So um, as a reporter and, you know, you get a handle on a memo like this, you should be calling the agency either for a comment, a statement, some clarification. And if you have a relationship with that person, they can walk you through it and say, hey, this is, you know, this is in place all the time. Um, from an agency standpoint, you should have, before you put a memo out like that, something that may end up in the press, you should be prepared and your folks should be prepared for whatever questions may follow so that, um, you get the call from a reporter who says, hey, I just got this memo and I see this new policy. We're going to let folks uh, stay in the field. 
you know, what's this about? And you have an answer for them or you're ready for that question. So it's, it's both ways. I should say, like, not every every reporter gets that story wrong that, you know, we, ha- we have to step away from that. There will be people who get that memo and simply post it on social media who aren't reporters at all. Um, so there's various levels. I mean, the, the great aspect of this time that we live in is that the barrier to entry of delivering information is zero. Um, I can take that memo, I can take anything and post it on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or anywhere. And now it's out in the world, depending on how many followers and sharing and all that other nonsense. But so the barrier to entry to share information is zero. Um, It's the credibility aspect that goes with that. So yeah, I mean, you're, you know, depending on the story and how it comes about, the reporters should and largely do make a call to those agencies to see what it what the answers are. So it really it, it's being proactive. You you want to con- it's about controlling your message. It's about letting your your agencies or the people that report on you or the people that share your information making sure that they have the right information and you can guide that. And that's that's where we're getting to the role of this public information officer, which we're going to talk about um, coming up. One of the other big things that we talk about in EMS um, is patient privacy. And it, it's an important goal. It's something, look, it's something we should be doing. I think the old days of the news, you know, the newspaper articles that are up in all the old in the old uh, stations and the headquarters where, you know, I, I re- you know, I saw them from like the sixties where there's somebody still trapped in the car and they got a picture of him. And it's like Joe Smith of so-and-so was, uh, you know, <laughs> injured in this accident. You know, I- I'm glad we've moved past that. I think the pendulum swung a little bit too far because I think we have rules in place and I think people don't interpret the rules correctly in some cases. I think that hurts us too. Um, so I guess, Margaret, let's talk about this, this thing we call HIPAA and talk about some of the laws that are out there um, that limit the amount of what we can put out on our stories. And kind of, I want kind of say, like, can we set it up as a framework to what we can share our story about? I think that's a great way of looking at it. Um, we, we tend to say, oh, I can't do that. But really what we should be focusing on is what we can do. And instead of saying, oh, I'm not allowed to talk about that. How about we make it a positive thing and say to our patients, um, well, you had a really bad day. We were able to help you. You have a great story. Can we share your story? Or our organization trains all year for something like what happened to you, where the car was submerged under the bridge or something like that. And um, we want to tell our story uh, about how we train and about how great our members feel to have been able to help you. Can we share your part of that story? And, And lead with the, we value your privacy, but there's two stories to tell here, the provider stories and the patient stories. And if we can focus on the positive way of looking at it, I've, I've had clients who have come to me and said, can we share, Can we post this? And I say, yes, here's the form. Get the patient to sign this form and you can post it. Oh, never mind. So we're almost ashamed to ask patients. And, and I think what it comes from maybe is, well, we're about to toot our own horn. 
and we want to, but we don't want to go to someone who, you know, just had an MI and say, hey, we want to tell the story about how our door to balloon time was only 40 minutes uh, because we know that's how we know. We know it's private. We know it's personal and we don't want to share it. And we feel strange asking it. So, you know, that's the first part is if we always lead with the positive, we'd like to protect your confidentiality. However, you've got a great story. Let's tell it. And the worst the patient can do is say, no, I don't want you to share it. And wouldn't you be glad to know that? So I think that the first thing is before HIPAA even existed, there was always a duty of confidentiality, but it was something that was never was very rarely enforced. There's not a lot of cases out there about it. And frankly, before EMS was considered medicine, we were just your neighbors who drove the ambulance kind of thing. And there was nothing there uh, that had any professionalism or duty of confidentiality. The other thing to look at is the professionalism of people with various roles. When you're at the scene of a motor vehicle accident or a mass casualty incident, you've been invited there to help the people. Your job should be patient care. Your job shouldn't be filming it so that you can post it later. The people who are there with that job and that responsibility, the journalists, they have a completely different ethical code and uh, you know, their job, they're fulfilling their duty when they tell people what happened. We're fulfilling our duty when we protect people from having their information disclosed. So it's really difficult, I have found, for some people to get why it's okay that that picture it was posted on Facebook by the local newspaper, but it wouldn't be okay if I posted it. And 100%, it may, be, it may not make sense, but that is what the law says. And HIPAA, which is the federal law, and every state will have their own laws, but HIPAA applies to what they call covered entities. And if you're a healthcare provider, and if you're in EMS, you're a healthcare provider, and you transmit information electronically, and if you're in 2021, you're transmitting information electronically, then HIPAA applies to you and you're a covered entity. The police department isn't, the fire department isn't, the dispatch center isn't. Now, some of them may be if they're part of a covered entity, but that's why, yeah, a lot of people are putting information out there that it would be unethical and illegal for us to do ourselves. Yeah, I, I, a really good example is um, Anna from the show and I were working and we delivered a baby. Well, Anna delivered the baby. I kind of just was there. Um, but um, afterwards, they were, you know, we handed, you know, we were, we were going through the post, you know, um, call stuff and getting prepped for transport. And little did we know that the department, the police department that was on the scene with us had already put it on Facebook. <laughs> so after the call, I'm, you know, sitting there in the truck and scrolling through and I went, <laughs> so I'm like right, calling right. my supervisor, like I didn't do this. We, we didn't mm -hmm. know this was happening. <laughs> and, and it's because it's a different, it's a different level. They, we're covered. We have an obligation to privacy. They, they, have an ethical thing, but their eth their level is different than ours. And people don't understand that. And I think that's a problem that we have with HIPAA is that we don't, we don't educate about it. Um, well, any EMS person who has gone to transport a patient from one healthcare facility to another and has been told that I'm not allowed to tell you this patient's diagnosis and I'm not allowed to let you look at the chart because of HIPAA understands how HIPAA is misinterpreted. Oh, absolutely. 
and and it's it's still a thing. And how long has HIPAA HIPAA's been here for more than twenty years, right? Mm-hmm. I would say what ninety. I want to say ninety five. I, I think I think we're up. coming up. We're coming up on an anniversary this year or next year. Okay. Uh, the the um the actual regulations didn't go into effect until like thirteen. 2003, I mean, okay. uh, but, but yeah, it's been, it's been a while. And the, the other thing I, as I think we've got, we've got two kinds of listeners. We've got listeners who are in positions of leadership in their organization. And we have people who are primarily clinicians and you have different roles in this, but I would say if you are a clinician and you are not part of the individuals in your organization that make the rules you still have the ability to read the policies, see what the practices in the end are, and and bring up things if you think something is too strict or not strict enough or not being enforced, because ultimately it's us personally who have an obligation to our patients. And just because you aren't the one who, you know, illegally shared the information uh, doesn't mean you can't go and say, I think we need to, you know, have more education. I, I feel like everybody should know as, enough, as much about HIPAA as I do, because you're supposed to have policies, you're supposed to have forms, and you're supposed to have annual training. And after 20 years, yeah, you would think that anybody who's been in healthcare for a little bit of time would know HIPAA backwards and forwards, and we don't. We're, we're still, we're still fighting that battle. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but there are exceptions to HIPAA, right, Margaret? So take us through some of the exceptions and this may, these may be opportunities for us to tell our story better, right? Yeah. So you have to look at it as if you're sharing information in order to do the job that you're supposed to be doing. Uh, then the sharing of the information, the minimum necessary information to do that job is not a violation of HIPAA. Uh, however, most of, uh, most of what we want to release the information for is, uh, is in fact not, uh, not permitted. So for example, uh, we, can, we can share patient information for public health activities. So when the... Um, when the, the local Department of Health comes by and wants to know how many of your uh, patients have, um, have COVID, you, you can share that information because that's, uh, that's public health activity. Uh, for victims of abuse, uh, we have requirements in most states to report that abuse. So you can report the medical information about a patient uh, in order to meet that reporting obligation. Uh, when somebody dies and the funeral director or the ME needs information, we can share with that. Uh, same for organ or tissue don- donation. Uh, if, if you need to share information about your patient to prevent a threat of harm, to an imminent threat of harm to yourself or to somebody else who's on the scene, 100% you can do that. But the um, ultimate thing is if you don't need to disclose something about the patient in order to take care of the patient or for the internal QA activities, uh, then you shouldn't do it without the patient's permission. And the thing that I always get the question of is about, well, what if I take pictures for training purposes? Absolutely. You can take pictures and share information for training purposes, but if you're taking a picture, you need the patient's permission. And it's, it's, 
and this I think is an ethical thing as well as a legal thing. How would you feel if on the worst day of your life, somebody snapped a picture of you? Oh, sure, they cut off your head, they, they blurred your face, but you know that EMT students across the country are seeing pictures of your mangled leg. Wouldn't you want to be asked for permission to do that? Now, a lot of us, because we're in EMS, yes, oh, I would want, if anything happened to me, I would want to use that for education. But your average person, maybe not. So if you're trying to show somebody, well, this is what, uh, this is what uh, uh, deviation, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I haven't been a clinician in a while. A tracheal deviation looks like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ask, you know, ask. And, and that's, the, that's the problem right there is we think we own what happens to us when we're on a call because that is our story. And we have to remember that what happens to us when we're on a call, that seems like a really interesting thing that we want to be able to show other people because it will help them be better medics and EMTs, that it's also somebody else's story and we need their permission. When you tell stories, when you're teaching, uh, you have to de-identify it. So if you say something like, well, one time we had a patient who had this and these were their signs and symptoms, that's fine. If you say, oh, you know, three years ago, remember that big fire? Well, this is what the patient, these are the signs and symptoms that that patient had. And now you just called that person out. And anything that you do that can identify a patient is considered protected health information. So for example, one person was um, violated HIPAA because someone on social media talked about a motor vehicle accident. They, you know, they posted an article from the paper. They were talking about a motor vehicle accident. Somebody got very badly injured and a nurse, an ER nurse who tended to that patient wrote, yeah, well, they should have had their seatbelt on. Now, had that just been some random nurse commenting, they should have had their seatbelt on. It just would have been a random comment. But, it but she wasn't. knew the patient didn't have the seatbelt on because she was told that as part of her relationship as the uh, you know patient provider relationship, and therefore she violated confidentiality. So sometimes saying the exact same thing can be not a HIPAA violation or a HIPAA violation. And safe to say that person doesn't work there anymore. Uh, yeah, I think that would be safe to say. <laughs> You know, the, the, Margaret shared some awesome information there, but the one and the one thing that sticks out, um, which I always come back to, is friction. <laughs> you know, we live in this world where um, we're almost like you mentioned the baby scenario. You know, the police beat you to the story. That's okay. Um, we don't have to be first with these things. We can be better with them and tell a better mm -hmm. story. And Margaret's point about uh, the agency that talked to her and, you know, here, have them fill out this form. Well, you're building some time in there and you're going back to the patient to see how they care. And it's building friction into the scenario. We live in an era where oftentimes it's a race to be on social media with something. We, we feel it. We all know we want to be the first. I mean, that's why there's 72 million pictures of the same thing when it happens. We can all see the same sunset and suddenly it's everywhere. Um, so we're in this speed aspect. Um, but something else Margaret talked about in terms of ethics, um, we have our own ethics and morals too, and we should have them. In that sense, I see times people post call details and I'm fairly confident that they have not reached out to the patient, but they've given enough information that if it was me, I'd know it was me. And I cringe every single time. It's why I often 
um, say and uh, you know don't post any call information whatsoever. Um, I, I you know I see photos from scenes. I see people with helmet cams. Um, and, you know, and this happens a lot on the fire side. You know, those guys are, are raced to post that helmet cam stuff of them going through my house on fire. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't yeah. know that very often anybody's thinking about the person on the other side, which is what Margaret was talking about, which is key. And if you build in some fr friction, excuse me, um, and go back to them so often, they're really happy to tell their story. And if it's positioned exactly the way Margaret said it, um, I saw somebody the other day post a picture on Facebook of their members with a woman who delivered a baby just before Christmas. And there she is holding the baby and there's the team. So mm -hmm. she's not socially distant, but wearing masks, thank you. Okay. Um, you know, and that worked out fine. It's, it's that we have to overcome that race to be first with this story and make sure we build friction into the system. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of like just don't be a garbage person. Don't you're, <laughs> you're there for a per and this is we, we use it. Anna Ryan uses this term all the time and it just sums it up. You're not there to pat yourself on the back for the job you're doing. You're there to do the job. Um, you know, you have a standard. We have an ethical standard to the patient. Um, the other thing is ask permission. It's, it's a simple common courtesy thing. Like, and I guess the quote, the one situation that I have is like, you know, consent being what it is and you want that person to have informed consent. Do either of you think it's ethical in a situation where you have a patient who's sick to say, Hey, is it okay if I take a picture of you right now? Because this is a really awesome injury and we're going to get good training value out of it. I'm kind of like, mm, not real. Exactly. Yeah. Like if it makes you, you kind of cringy, like you shouldn't do it. I think you always have to go with your gut. I come back to the simple morals aspect here. If you're asking that question to yourself, that means you shouldn't ask it. I may be naive in that approach, but you know, you can a hundred percent of the time find a similar photo online somewhere you can uh, use that yeah. maybe has approval or something. Um, but you have to judge every, you know, scenario. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a teenager um, who's used to living their entire life online um, through multiple accounts, some their parents can see and some they can't, um, you know, the, the, the fish hook that went through their earlobe might be kind of cool for them uh, and they might understand the training thing. But I think, you know, if, if, if you're asking somebody and you're asking yourself, you're having an internal debate over it, don't ask. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good standard. But, but also, I'm assuming that everybody gets these little magazines in the mail that I get. I, I live in the overlap of two health systems. So for actually three. So for the three closest hospitals to me, I get a quarterly magazine from each of them. Yeah. Which is full of articles about how awesome their doctors are and how much their patients love them. And they'll have three page articles where they have gone, well, now they're doing it in drawings, but they would go to the patient's house and with a professional photographer and take a great picture of them. And then there's a picture of their doctor in the lab coat. And there's a detailed explanation of their surgery and what their life was like before and after. And these are people who want their 15 minutes of fame. 
they they are so happy with the results that they want everyone to know about it. Now, you know, they don't ever do an article about someone. Well, I had the back surgery, but it didn't really make me any better. And, you know, my back still hurts. Um, So we we really should be only um, choosing the patients who had a really good outcome. But I think if you're uh, and obviously not the EMT who was on the call, but if your PIO or another special person, maybe your chaplain or someone from your organization who is skilled in this can go and say, uh, we, you know, we like to honor our people, the people who helped you, we think did a good job. They trained for a long time. Would you like to come down to the building um, and have snacks while we present them with a plaque? Would you like to be interviewed for an article about this? You know yeah. what? They can say no. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and I was actually in one of those things. I long, long time ago, Jersey Shore Medical Center, I was a patient and they came back to me and they said, hey, we'd love to tell your story. Can you do that? I'm like, sure, you know, no big deal. Um, so let's talk about setting this up because I think this is the path forward for us to do this. And this is where we can share this information legally, safely, and ethically and not get us in, in a jam. And I think we can all agree that you know, having the the rookie on your squad or the guy who, you know, the guy who's the life member to just pop something off and throw it to social media is absolutely, no matter what the wrong way to do it, it's going to get you in trouble one way or the other. Don't do it. So as two experts, I think you can agree with that, right? Oh, you're talking my language, policies. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this role of a public information officer. Um, let's talk about getting a policy together for this. How, why do you need, Rich, why is it so important to have this and why, why don't more agencies have a PIO? You're a PIO. What do you do for your, what are you doing for your organization to make sure that your story's getting out there ethically, safely, and within the rules? So I think there's a couple things and, um, uh, you know, we can debate policies over and over. Um, I feel like one, you need the a PIO or a PIO team involved so that you have a funnel for those stories. So that's somebody's job to look for those good stories, to handle those interactions and to be ready if something else comes out um, where, where you have to respond to it. So I think you need somebody dedicated to that job. And, and then that trickles down to every member knows that person is the person for the job. Um, so I think you create a funnel for that system for somebody to look for stories. And not every story has to involve what goes on in the back of that ambulance. You know, things your members do. There's a, there's a million stories that we can tell about our agencies, new tools, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and then I think that has to be baked into the agency. Um, yes, a policy helps, and, and Margaret can explain the legal aspect, which I couldn't go near, um, but I think I, I think it has to be baked into the the morals and the ethics. I mean, we see so many folks lose their jobs because of an errant tweet or because they posted something. Yeah. And you know, what's that old Ben Franklin statement? It takes good, you know, uh, ten good deeds to override one bad act. I'm, I'm messing it up there, but you know, people remember the bad stuff. We all see the story about the provider who is stealing or something. And, yeah. we, and, and we don't remember the good CPR saved story where the guy came back to the building and shook our hands. Um, so it's a matter of making sure um, people understand the implications 
that even their actions on a smaller level can have on an overall organization. So I think that helps in that sense. And so, but a good PIO is going to one build relationships with local media so that the local media is aware and the local media look, there are fewer reporters every single day, right? There was a story that came out recently where it was like 16,000 people in the media business lost their job last year. That means the folks, who are doing the jobs are doing more jobs. They're doing twice as many stories that they used to do, and they're looking for stories. So journalists are looking for stories. They can't, they won't find them all on their own. So a good PIO can actually develop those stories as well and find things within the agency that are of interest to reporters. They're not always looking for the the doom and gloom and the blood and guts, but those good heartwarming stories. So I think it's important to have a PIO for those reasons to sort of funnel that storytelling. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and it seems like it's an easy way to get our message straight is to have somebody who, who really enjoy, and you don't have to be an expert journalist to do this role of a PIO. All you have to be is somebody who likes media, who watches the news, who, who knows good stories and can talk and say, Hey, Hey, Rich, this is a great story about this. Can can you use it? Hey, we just did this the other day, or we're just training on this new piece of equipment. Let me tell you why this is good. Um, this has a lot of benefits downstream for your agency, because if this is stuff is getting out there, this makes life easier for you when it comes budget time, when it comes to elected oh, officials yeah. making decisions on your agency. Um, a lot of trouble can be headed off by having a positive uh, media presence and being proactive. Well, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the barriers to entry, there are none. So you can own your own platforms, get your messages out. And, and it's a great equalizer in the sense of a small agency with a really active media profile can seem far bigger than it ever will be. And, um, and it can build some of those stuff. And another aspect to think about too, is good media means uh, also helps with morale and, and team building. And also when it comes time for funding or grants or any of those things, I've seen grant applications that look, you know, they wanna see your website, they wanna see some of your media exposure. They wanna see that they're gonna gain from that. So um, there's a number of benefits that go just between what today's call was. And you can build a good media presence around all of those things without actually ever discussing a call. Yeah. Um, the, I, I think another benefit to this is if you've got that good relationship with the media and you're, and you're doing these things in your agency, when you have the screw up and my old, one of my old sergeants used to say, uh, 10, you know, uh, one screw up, uh, negates 10 attaboys. Um, mm -hmm. It was a little more blunt, but you, you get the idea. Um, <laughs> we are explicit, but I just didn't feel like F-bombing today. Um, mm -hmm. When you have that that problem or when you have a screw up or something, you know, or, you know, one of your you know, member gets caught doing something they shouldn't be doing. It's a real good tool for crisis management because you have that you already have that swell of good things out there. And you can offset it by saying, yeah, we, yeah, we had a mistake. We're humans. We made mistakes, but we fixed this problem. And here's how we're going to do this going forward. That sounds a heck of a lot better than somebody teeing off on you in the media because, you, you know, and uh, we just had a recent thing up um, in our state where somebody was uh, caught 
um, violating people's privacy by filming them, recording them uh, in the bathrooms or the showers or I don't know. And that agency got destroyed in the media. And because they don't have a presence, uh, that's all I'm going to ever remember about that organization. Right. No, no, it's not like that organization had a policy to do that. They didn't know what was happening. Right. Right, right, right. But if you've got a good media system, you know, you can let that scenario die down, however you're going to play that one out um, with your responses. But, um, you know, can you um, then flood the market with some other stories? I mean, flood's not the right term there. But, you know, do you have some other good stories that you can pull out of your pocket to offset that? Um, and, and to your point, if they know that you know, you're a good agency with good people and you've had, you know, six saves in the last month, they'll understand that, you know, everybody understands there's a bad apple somewhere. I also have to bring up, uh, we are not kind to our own people in EMS. No, that's and true. <laughs> I, I have to say that most of the coverage that I saw of that was somebody posting a, a rather neutral individual specific article which just mentioned where this person worked right uh, and then 167 ems people talking crap about the person or the agency or having that schadenfreude of like uh, ha 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 somebody did something bad and it's kind of sexy and all of this and uh, yeah we we do that and I think that's a totally different part. That's not necessarily what a public information officer is going to do, but it is something that's important to know if your agency is going to create or invest in this role is that it's not just the general public, it's also the industry and we are not kind to each other. And uh, that is the, oh, the person who can break that, who can tip that so that we go back I don't know, even know if we can go back, but that we support each other and and cheer each other up, that would be great. Does Margaret, do you think your individual agency having a social media policy uh, and educating your staff about this, like this is not what we do here. This is what the expectations are. And if you don't do this, you're going to be in a world of trouble. Um, do you think that can kind of tamp this down? Like if every agency, and I know the majority of agencies, especially EMS where we are, doesn't have a social media policy. The big ones do. I'm sure the small ones don't. And we have a lot I, more I think it's about culture. Yeah, okay. I think it's about culture. And the policy is a necessary but not sufficient part of it. As long as the people who are leaders, who are showing the new people how things are done, are of the, well, you need to get a thick skin in this profession and well, that's just the way it is. As long as that persists, uh, we will just, each generation of people that come in will be just as bad. And now that social media exists and that young people do have this zero threshold to putting things online and they haven't yet suffered any consequences from speaking their mind constantly all the time in public. Uh, yeah, we will have this. And, and heck, some of the people who are judgmental, they're judgmental because they're passionate and because they want something really high quality. They're just going about it in such a negative way. And to have someone in your organization who can lead 
new people and people who have been around for a while and say, let's turn some of that passion into a, a positive way to show our organization to the public, to make our organization the kind of place that people want to come because we promote quality rather than just cutting down people who are um, who don't have this this high quality. And I mean, I have, I have a friend who's always sending me uh, clips from Facebook on the why does every time something bad happen, it have to be professional versus volunteer. And yeah. why does and and this is this is in New Jersey where there is a, a heightened tension between um, the the two kinds of service. Where just because you're not getting paid and this isn't your career doesn't mean that you're not professional. But there are so many people who have a problem with that. And all of those people. So no matter where you are in the world, if you think somebody isn't doing a good job. The answer there is, how can I make it so that people in this position will have the same competence as someone like me who's so competent and professional, rather than, oh, we just need to discount those people in our industry who don't get paid or don't do it full time. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention boxing. that because you see that on social media, certainly on Facebook, and I am on a volunteer organization the minute you post anything about a volunteer organization, that conversation immediately devolves into the volunteers versus career um, and goes exactly down that path. And that's, that's a great point. And like, you know, we always have to think in terms of, and this is, you know, it comes to the culture is like, what are you adding by posting? What are you adding to the discussion about posting you know, that 50th time that you're going to post the argument against volunteers versus something that improves those things. And that's where it's that friction. Social media has no friction. And we mm -hmm. feel like the world needs our opinion right then. And, um, uh, you know, when I teach social media programs, I'm always like, build some friction into that. Have a buddy system. Show that tweet to somebody else before yeah. you post it to see what they think. Um, uh, but you, but you then get into perhaps the legal aspect of this and policy aspect of it is those folks would then turn around and say, well, I'm posting as a John Doe, uh, mm -hmm. from my home. I don't, I'm not on the squad at that point. I'm a, oh, you're adorable. a regular person and, and it just gets nasty from there. Yeah. 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 It's social media is let's let's be honest it's it's fun i'm on it we, you know i love the meme pages we all have a good laugh but you know realize that it can devolve into a cesspool at any moment and you know this stuff is tracked there's always a tweet for everything and there's always something there's a lot of good people out there who are ethically posting things on social media and you know med twitter and fomed has a lot of these resources um, I think I think you got to do this as an individual, and if you want to improve culture, that's where we got to go. Um, so, Rich, I want I want to finish out with this. Let's let's assume I'm listening to this, and I've listened to the episode, and I've listened to you and Margaret. And I'm like, you know what? We need a PIO. I got to start doing this. How do you engage? How do we improve the message? How do we engage our you know the 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 how do we build that friction? And how do you get your agency to start doing these things? What's a, what's a good way to start? Okay, so I think one, you have to have um, team buy-in. So your organization has to agree that we need this. Um, you've got to identify somebody in the organization that wants to do it. 
Um, and, and if there isn't anybody in the organization, maybe you go to a local college and see if they'll put a plan together for you. But find somebody who's interested in doing that and then have build a team around them. I always look at this as like you, you, you make somebody your, your PIO chief and then fill out the, uh, you know, the, the incident command chart as you would somebody's going to do planning and, and organization and all that sort of stuff. So I think you got to get some buy-in. And then, you know, it doesn't hurt to simply have a what-if scenario. You know, what, what are, are the stories that we have? We are ordinary people doing extraordinary ordinary things on a regular basis. And, and what makes each one of us special? So each one of us has a story. You know, you look on social media and a lot of times the things that get a lot of traction are simple um, member bios. This is how they got there. This is what they do. This is what they look like. Yeah. Um, we did a series of them last summer and we got a lot of traction on social media of people sharing those. So look for the good stories you can tell. What training are we doing? Um, and then put those people in charge of finding and, and gathering those messages and then have your PIO identify your local media and make contact with them. And that goes from your local patch, your local online services, your traditional publications, your regional um, television stations, and start just building a simple relationship there. And that can simply be a phone call that says, hey, I'm Rich, I'm the PIO of XYZ Squad. What kind of stories are you looking for? Or, or create some around those times. I mean, um, there are a million different things that people can do. You know, every year come, uh, you know, October when we're changing the clocks, you see the stories about um, changing the batteries in your smoke detectors. That doesn't have to be a fire department. It can be EMS telling that story as well. So look for sort of seasonal or holiday things that you can make stories out of. And don't be afraid to crib other people's ideas. I don't mean ultimately just steal them, but see what's worked for other folks. Look around the country, follow other agencies, see what's working for them. Okay. I do remember there was an agency that had a service where if, uh, I don't think you had to make a donation, they asked for a donation, but they would come around with some spray paint and some stencils and spray paint your house number on the curb in front of your house in reflective paint. That's that's a great way to have 911 uh, awareness without having anything to do with patient care. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. there's a, there's a million things you can do. And, and like Rich says, you know, look, imitations, the sincerest form of flattery. Um, you know, like in my neighborhood, in my town, the cops go around with uh, gift certificates for the ice cream stores. And if they see a kid wearing a helmet on a skateboard or a bike, they pull, they, they pull them over and they give them the, <laughs> they give them the, the coupon. I mean, what a home run. And you yeah. know, it, it just, it's brilliant. And I'm like, that's a trauma thing. We should be doing that. Like, you know, why not? Yeah, you know, it's a great idea. I mean, and, and you, that idea and Margaret's idea, these are, what you're looking for is non-emergency ways to interact with your community that make great, good stories, right? Every year, the first week of December, our squad takes Santa around. Yeah. We have a sled, um, we play music, uh, 10 years ago, we built a donation system in for the food bank to make that a separate thing. So it took the focus off of us. We're still getting attention. Our ambulances are out there every night. We're bringing Santa around, but we built in this food component so that people were now donating to the food bank. So it wasn't just touting our horn, which we were, um, 
So we got a story out ahead of time. Here's, um, you know, Santa's coming around next week. Here's how you can interact with him. And then we got a story on the back end where we would load up the ambulance with thousands of pieces of food to donate to the food bank. So it was like, I always tell people, look for your Santa. What is that? And this year, um, because of the pandemic, we, we felt like we needed to get this to the community. So we made it a as socially distanced as we could and, and built in financial donations, electronic to the food bank. So we still um, had that process out there. Um, so it's, you know, it has nothing to do with us fixing bones, but gets our name out there, interaction with the community, multiple stories, people are sharing their photos. They love it. Um, and, and so we're looking for things that, you know, are not actually dealing with patients all the time to build a, a, an awareness. I think that for any agency that does 911, it doesn't matter if you are a multi-state commercial agency, a not-for-profit volunteer squad, a hospital-based agency, it doesn't really matter to your community, you're the ambulance. And you're who comes when they call 911, and these things will work no matter what your agency is based on. I, I agree 100%. I think that's a great way to end it up. We, we've got a lot of uh, really good ideas here. Uh, we touched on a lot of things. Um, you know, bottom line, if you don't have a PIO or you don't have a media relations um, mission or portfolio in your, in your organization, you're doing it wrong. Um, it's going to bite you one way or the other, um, either at budget time or when somebody does something silly or just that nobody's going to know who, who you are, or what you do. Uh, there are legal ways to do this. Um, there are things that don't engage HIPAA, um, as we talked about. And, you know, in the end, if you want to share a patient's story or you want to share something really good that your, your organization did or your team did, ask permission. You know, be a, be a common sense, be a, be a nor, you know, don't be a garbage person as Anna says, and just put people's stuff out in the street. Um, just ask permission nine times out of 10 afterwards, they'll, they'll tell you fine. You know, um, it's good stuff. Um, and this is stuff you should have. And if your organization doesn't have it, there are tons of resources out there to do it. Uh, let us know what you think. Um, if you have a PIO or a media policy or something that you think is interesting, you know, um, reach out to us. Uh, we're at overrunproductions.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at overrunEMS. Please no HIPAA violating pictures or anything like that. Um, on uh, Instagram, Overrun Productions. And, um, you know, Rich, Margaret, I want to thank you guys for being on. You gave us a lot to think about and um, hopefully a pathway to kind of telling our story better so that uh, we, we kind of cut down the incidence of these, um, these mis, the, I guess these mislabeled or misrepresented stories about our profession. Um, and pointing out more to the point, pointing out that, you know, like you might, you might get a check at the end of the day. You might not. We're all professionals. We're all clinicians and we need to do this the right way. So thanks for being on guys. Rich, do you have anything you want to plug or any uh, thing you're going to be presenting at or. Nope. Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be at EMS today in August and <laughs> we'll see where that goes. Um, but I'm out there at, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rich M Huff or Instagram at Rich M. Huff. Okay, great. Um, yeah, and, and you know, Rich is, is again, a great resource. Um, I'm sure if you, you wanna talk to him about doing this or being a PIO, uh, he's definitely the guy to talk to about this. 
Uh, Margaret, tell, tell us, Keevney and Strieger, what's going on? How are you guys? What do you guys got? Um, how can you help somebody set up a PIO program? Um, what do you guys have available? Well, we've got a couple of things through our sister organization, EMS Aegis. We're actually putting together a program for volunteer leaders where we take the different leadership positions and uh, and orient people to them because we find that a lot of times in the volunteer organizations where you elect people on an annual basis, uh, there wasn't necessarily any training and you just get right into the position. So we're working on that. And we're also, we have our lead classes, which are for leaders of any kinds of organization, whether new or existing. And that's a weekend long uh, 16 hour class that right now is, uh, all over New Jersey. And as soon as we can travel, we'll be doing it all over the country again. Awesome. So again, thank you guys for being on. Uh, this was a great talk. I really enjoyed it. I picked up some uh, interesting tools I'm gonna bring back to my place. Um, in the end, folks, uh, don't be a garbage person. Focus on the patient, ask permission, and uh, we'll see you next time on The Overrun. Thanks for uh, coming. And again, I'm gonna steal Kevin's line and get home safe okay we're out thank you no, that was great.